Business and Buckets fans, we are live, episode 64, another jam-packed Super Wild Card Weekend Recap, plenty of sports to get to, uh, but first, we're going to jump right in and talk about Field Supplements. I mean, fellas, performance is the top of the list in all categories of our lives. That's why you need counterattack from Field Supplements. Their advanced on-cycle and post-cycle standalone formula is so much more than the average testosterone booster. Counterattack combats estrogen production, supports liver, kidney, and heart health, as well as boosts sex drive, energy levels, and lean muscle mass. So let's face it, we all want to feel like a young, energized version of ourselves, increase vitality inside and outside the gym with Counterattack. The missus will thank you for it. So don't wait, head to FueledSupplements.com and use my promotion code BUCKETS for 15% off. Once again, promotion code BUCKETS, B-U-C-K-E-T-S. Super wild card weekend. I had a good time. I know there was some games that were a little bit lopsided, but hey, we got to give due diligence where due diligence is deserved and some guys balled out. But before we talk about the the recap of the wild card, preview the divisional round, there has been some things going on around the league, including including the move of the Texans firing head coach David Coley. I think this one caught people by somewhat of a surprise. He did well when filled in with the role. That team had momentum, looked better in his you know stay towards the the later half of the season than I think people, even including myself, would give them credit for. It was announced that Zeke had played through a partially torn PCL, that he's not going to need off-season surgery, that he will be able to heal with time, which makes you wonder the Cowboys who, you know, this had happened week four against the Panthers. It had been noted and, um, you know, had been made a part of the news. It was very well aware that Zeke wasn't healthy. And that obviously did not matter to the Cowboys. They kept him going, tried to get everything they could out of him. But, uh... It's just kind of curious, especially with the performance that uh, Tony Pollard had, that they wouldn't look at other options. Give them some rest. Let's get them ready for the postseason. You know, were they worried that they couldn't get through the dumpster fire NFC East? But with such a good rookie year, so much momentum within the Cowboys, Ezekiel Elliott is now 26 years old, and I feel like we're starting to see him fade a little bit. Right, He had gotten so much action early in his career, and now here we are in 2021. People want to talk shit on him. I feel like he is you know, not the same back that we're used to seeing, but this year he did finish over 1,000 yards, which is not an easy feat to do as a running back, no matter what kind of offensive line you have, who you're playing for. The year before, 979, then 1,300, 1,400 983 in his rookie year in 2016, 1600 yards. Let's see if they give the per average here. Rushing. Yeah, so 4.2 rushes per average, uh, 4.2 yards per rush. He's averaging 4.5 on his career. So he's not that far from the Zeke that we had all come to see uh, his rookie season and through his NFL career. But I, you wouldn't notice that in the media. And even watching the games, I, I think maybe because I see Tony Pollard so explosive in what he's done. Uh, but they're really going to need Zeke to come back next year. Let's see. I didn't even look. Ezekiel Elliott's contract. 
six years in 2019 before the 2019. So 2019, 20, one, two, three. Yeah, I mean, he, he's still with the boys for quite some time. You know, Tony Pollard is explosive and as good as he's been. Hasn't been a bell cow back. Hasn't been that lead back. And even in today's NFL, running back by committee is more and more common and almost seems like a necessity as one guy can't handle the load. So I'm not too worried about Zeke. We'll get to the Cowboys here in a minute. But it's still just, it, it makes you wonder, what the hell were they thinking? Why didn't they give him some rest? Um, did they think that, again, did they need him? Were they worried that they weren't going to be able to get to where they wanted to go? There, there's some question marks there. The Bengals defensive tackle, Larry Ojanjobi, will miss the rest of the playoffs with a foot injury. And that is terrible news if you're a Bengals fan because King Henry is coming to town and he is going to be running right at you. So uh, whoever has to fill in that position for the Bengals is going to get his hands full in, in his first uh, playoff start. Let's pull them up real quick. So he is out. So insert BJ Hill. Um, I am somewhat familiar with BJ Hill. He's been around the league for a little bit. Uh, he started with the Giants for three years and now is with the Bengals. So BJ Hill, everyone in the A and B gaps, get ready because the Tennessee Titans are coming to town. And that's just brutal news for the Bengals. They're going to need every asset that they can get. Mike Mayock fired from the Raiders. The glorified online Mike Mayock, all the mock drafts, all the know-how. I, I think I heard someone, potentially Colin Coward, say this. Just being a GM, how many things you have to handle. You have to handle the coach as they can override decisions, right? Even in the first few rounds of the draft, you know, let's say Gruden gets 51% of the poll, Mayock 49, he still gets to trump those decisions, Right, So you have to manage the coach, you have to manage the personnel, the egos, the kids, the adults, the vets. There's just so much involved. So I, I don't want to go in and, and say that Mike Mayock did a terrible job. I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, more so on John Gruden, the full staff. They have underperformed. You know, you get John Gruden, you get Mike Mayock, you get Gruden to a 10-year contract. Chucky, let's go, right? Let's make some changes. He got rid of Khalil Mack. He got rid of all those assets and wanted to make the team the, uh, his own. And, you know, they really haven't had anything to show for it. You know, get, you know, obviously Mike Mayock finished the season, but, you know, we, we get rid of the head coach. Now Mike Mayock, they do get a playoff run. They didn't look, you know, tremendously bad, but I don't know if they're a, a long stay for, a, you know, going to be a perennial playoff team. So I, I just take this whole Raiders experience with those big names uh, as a swing and a miss. The Seahawks fire defensive coordinator Ken Norton Jr. I don't think this comes as much of a surprise. Um, Ken's been a part of Pete Carroll's staff ever since he's been into the Seahawks and his collegiate career. But ever since the Legion of Boom, that defense has continually and gradually not been the same and what fans would expect from the Seahawks. Bobby Wagner is still there, but really the only true staple and, and outstanding performer on that defense. So... Uh, I'm not too surprised about this. You know, they're going through some changes, potentially, supposedly, or reportedly, Russell's going to look at some of his options. It seems like Pete Carroll's staying now. So it's going to be very interesting to see how those dominoes fall. The Steelers most likely retaining offensive coordinator Matt Canada. I talked about this, you know, being a Steelers fan, this hits close a little bit. It always seems like it's the offensive coordinator's fault, Right. Always seems like it's the offensive coordinator's fault. And much like the Cowboys, you know, their roster and their offense is better 
developed. That depth chart's great. But it's not the lack of weapons. Najee Harris, Deontay Johnson, right? Juju came back. He's been a weapon. Uh, Pat Fryermuth. Even then, uh, before him, Eric Ebron. They have, uh, you know, not as good of an offensive line. They're struggling there. But they've had the weapons over the course of time. Mike Wallace, Willie Parker, all these guys. And when there seems to be offensive issues, you know, Ben in the media of late because of his age and not being as mobile, he's gotten a lot of the blame. I don't think he should shoulder a lot of that. But as the internal fandom of the Steelers, you know, reading the athletics, seeing what the fans have to say, seeing the, tw- the social medias, everyone wants to blame the offensive coordinator. And I don't want Matt Canada back either. Right, all this jet motion, these sweeps, this college-like play, it's fancy, it's good, but it hasn't performed. Um, sometimes the Claypool jet sweep works here and there. He's a big-bodied receiver. You'd think he would be able to do some things like that. But uh, it, it doesn't get the job done and set their roster up for success. So I am a little surprised. You could tell in Mike Tomlin's postseason interviews that he wasn't super thrilled about this. Um, and it's not a done thing. It's not a for-sure thing. But I would assume that they give him another chance with the new start as the Steelers are going to look, you know, quite a bit different next year on offense. Um, past offensive coordinators. But it's just funny, you know, you always want to blame the offensive coordinator. I don't know if that's always, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. This is a trend. Could it be that we're hiring not very good offensive coordinators and it's always their fault? Sure, but we've had big-name offensive coordinators, Todd Haley. The last one I truly enjoyed was Bruce Arians. Um, but they had Matt Canada, Randy Fitchner that did not work out very well. He went from Big Ben's QB coach to the offensive coordinator from 2018 to 2020. Todd Haley was there for five years. Nobody enjoyed how that went, right? The little bubble screens, putting the receivers in space. I know that drove me nuts. 2004 to 2006, or excuse me, 2007 to 2011 was Bruce, Ar- Bruce Arians. That went well. Ken Weisenhunt before him. And I cannot speak to the coordinators before that. I was too young, didn't really have the knowledge. But ever since Bruce Arians, it seems like it's a continually a continual, continual shit show. And for me, what I really think the Steelers are lacking is Tomlin getting a nice supporting cast around him. I think he likes to be in control of the situation. I think... He gets the ability with the Roonies to do as much as he needs to do. But having big wig guys that can make critical decisions, put the team in, in, in a successful position, I think that's big. The better the team as coaches you have, the better you're going to perform, the better the team's going to perform. Uh, so that's my assumption and what I would like the Steelers to get into more. Uh, Matt Canada coming back, we'll see. I do not have high expectations for them. They got a lot of offensive things to figure out. Right, Deontay Johnson's coming up on a contract. Juju and James Washington are most likely gone. The offensive line is a revolving door. Uh, Eric Ebron should be gone, even though he wasn't involved. But uh, there's going to be some changes in the black and gold. The Yinzers are going to be having a stressful offseason. Hopefully, Kenny Pickett gets to stay in Pittsburgh. But other than that, Matt Canada returning. That's a tough one. And enough of the bullshit. Let's talk Super Wild Card Weekend and what a super weekend it was. We got to start off on Saturday. Uh, Saturday, I wanted to go skiing, but the snow out here in the Northwest is straight trash. You, you get these warm weather, you know, cycles that come in and it, it, it rains on the mountain after all this good snow. So I was, I was more worried about watching some football. Uh, the UFC was back. We'll talk about that. Um, but really, this was the only game that, was uh, worth a ton of watching as the Raiders were, you know, 
put through the ringer a little bit with some with some referee blown, you know, calls, lack of calls. But I think the Bengals are definitely the better the better team. They won twenty six to nineteen, and you know, obviously I picked the Bengals. I didn't pick them to cover. They ended up covering. But this team just has the Joe Burrow swag and moxie, right? They have the offensive weapons. They have a lot of holes. But they did one thing really well that surprisingly other teams lacked in their first playoff game, right? All the work you've done. Zeke's been running on a partially torn PCL since week four. All that fucking work, sweat, tears, and everything. And they do not give the ball to their playmakers. Well, Joe Burrow gives the ball to his playmakers, right? Whoever's doing the play calling, whether it's the head coach, the offensive coordinator, or Joe's just saying, I'm going to do what the fuck I need to do. I doubt that's the case, but they're getting the job done. They're getting their ball to their playmakers. The Raiders did pretty good at this as well, um, but it wasn't efficient enough, and they weren't able to stop the receiving core of the Bengals and keep up in the, the scoring department as the Bengals put up damn near 30 points in their first playoff victory and I believe 31 years, that place went nuts. Cool to see. Fuck the AFC North and all the other teams in there. But it was still cool to see. Um, it's kind of nice not really having a, a, a horse in the race. But when we look at the game, you know, we, we called Nick Foles Big Dick Nick. We get, Joe Burrow needs a nickname. There's Cool Joe, you know, whatever. He needs to have some sort of nickname because he's just a little different. You know, Big Dick Joe, if it rang a bell, that would be great. But uh, this guy's balls are huge, and he he's coming out and playing. He's not your young quarterback, right? A lot of people, it's his second year, forget that he did go through, you know, every year of college. You know, he is a, a grown man. He's not a young 19, 20-year-old quarterback like some of the other young rookies that come through. But he was 24-34, so 10 incompletions, 244 yards, and two touchdowns. He was sacked two times. He had 110 rating. They gave the ball to Joe Mixon intermittently. Obviously, they were playing with a lead for some time. Joe Mixon didn't get to do a lot with his opportunities. Um, the defensive front seven for the Raiders are pretty solid, but they're veterans that are willing to fucking plug the gap, do their duties, and uh, stop the run game, and they were able to do that. Joe Mixon did get 17 carries, but he finished with 48 yards. It's under a three-yard per carry average, and that's not going to be a good way to run your offense. But they didn't need to because they had Jamar fucking J Chase. And this is what I mean by getting your ball to the playmakers. Jamar got them into the playoffs, right? He single-handedly beat the goddamn Chiefs. Like Joe said, Jamar's over there. Let's get him the football. And during the big-time games, they were able to do so. And Jamar finished with nine catches, but on 12 targets. Got to give him double-digit targets. 116 yards. He did not have, you know, a 61-yard over the top. But every time the Bengals needed to play, there was fucking Jamar Chase. It's like, damn, Jamar Chase, Jamar Chase. It seemed like he was really being involved with everything that they needed to keep the wheels moving. CJ Uzoma had a pretty big game as well, right? You have these other guys, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. They're taking your coverage. Jamar Chase is just going to beat you underneath, which, you know, you're used to seeing Jamar over the top. They, they had him underneath in those shallow routes, those crosses. Nobody could keep up with them. And CJ was able to get some big-time plays, six catches, 64 yards, and a touchdown. Tyler Boyd reeled in a touchdown as well. For the Raiders' offense, right, this is all about Derek Carr. Derek Carr has kind of willed this team, you know, been the duct tape to all the holes that they have to get to where they need to go. And he had a pretty solid game. But uh, 
if I'm you know coming into this game, I'm thinking we got to give Josh Jacobs the ball, keep Joe Burrow, Jamar Chase, and those weapons off the field. And they didn't really do that. And, and Jacobs was running aggressive. He was running well. But Derek Carr threw the ball 54 times. Unless you're Pat Mahomes, maybe Tom Brady, you know, one of those completely elite quarterbacks, I do not want to see my quarterback throwing the ball 54 times. And they weren't down huge in this game by any means. So he is 29 to 54, 310 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Only one pick on 54 attempts. I mean, that's not terrible. If you're throwing the ball 54 times and not getting a pick, that's that's almost an accomplishment in my mind. Uh, but Josh Jacobs, he did have 13 carries for 83 yards. He is averaging 6.4 per carry. We need to get him more involved and get him involved in the passing game. He had 44 yards on four catches as a receiver, so they did that. But you need to have 20 to 30 carries. And, I mean, this fucking playoff football, you know, that the times are changing. Offenses are putting up more points. They're just so talented. I think the stigma of defense wins championships isn't quite as strong as it was, obviously, in the early 2000s, the 90s, and the 80s. The sport is evolving. But to me, the playoff recipe is still, again, get your ball to your playmakers. Don't don't fix what's not broke. We don't need to over-schematic this shit and make it so complicated. Get all these routes. Just scheme it up and not worry about our playmakers. Get your ball your playmakers and you have to have a good run game and defense and they had a good run game going but they did not stick with that I think this was uh definitely a part of the missing formula for the Raiders in this game they did give the ball to Darren Waller he had 12 targets he, he brought in seven of those 12 for 76 yards Zay Jones had 61 yards and a touchdown and Hunter Renfro eight carries on 11 targets for 58 yards so they gave him the targets Right, maybe they were defended well, whatever you have it. Uh, but give Josh Jacobs the ball more. Come on. And obviously, they lost uh, Kenyon Drake, who was a great you know, one-two punch. Maybe he was healthy. He gets a little bit of action. I know Josh Jacobs is battling injuries damn near the whole season. But feed the beast. Feed the beast. Uh, Derek Carr did lose a fumble as well. You know, He's having to do too much in this game. This is Joe Burrow's first playoff game. Granted, I think this is Derek Carr's as well. But Derek Carr's a true veteran, right? Why should we have to have him do so much? Usually, if you're the Raiders, you want to force Joe Burrow to do too much, and they didn't even make him do, do too much. He threw the ball 20 less times. Sure, Joe Mixon didn't you know, really show out on the box score with a 2.8 per, per carry average, but you got to mix it up. You got to have a run game. You got to bleed, live through the run. They did not. Defensively, the Raiders were able to get to Joe Burrow twice. Um, no big standouts defensively. Um, for the Bengals defense, Wyoming represent. Let's go, Wyo. Logan Wilson, 12 tackles and a pass defended. I love seeing him play out there. And they were able to get to Derek Carr three times as a unit. And Jermaine Pratt had the interception for, ten, uh, for the Bengals. The jungle was wild. They're celebrating. I can only imagine what the bars in Cincinnati of Ohio were like, what kind of light beer and shit they were drinking. But it had to have been a party. The Bengals were 5 of 12 on third, which is not very great. One for one on fourth. The Raiders 8 of 18 on third, one for two on fourth. The Raiders actually out-yarded the Bengals by 80. Um, they obviously lost the turnover battle 2-0. Two to, two to zero. And the Raiders were outpossessed by the Bengals by three minutes. Great way for super 
wild card weekend sets us up for the three the third times the charm matchup little divisional battle i love when teams get to play them not once not twice but three times as a steelers fans getting the ravens in the playoffs you already knew what it was you already know it was going down and as the analyst in me i already knew what was going to happen the bills on paper are arms and legs more talented than the bills as they should be right reigning afc championship team the Patriots taking a reset, having new pieces all over the field. And as long as there wasn't 45, 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts where Josh Allen can't do anything, they're going to get the job done. And boy, did Josh Allen show out. And he threw the ball 25 times, right? They gave Singletary and some people in the run game some action. That's what you have to do. And you have to give your big-time your big playmakers some opportunities. So Josh Allen was 21-25. to 25. 308 yards and five touchdowns, four incompletions, five touchdowns. Wyoming Cowboys, let's rejoice, baby. All the fans, the pokes, holy shit, these guys are out here doing the damn thing. He didn't get sacked, 157.6 rating, 98.5 QBR. Have a day, Josh Allen. I had talked about in the pre-playoff picture last episode, if you haven't seen my predictions, check them out. Right, I post on Instagram the video as well. Um, but obviously, YouTube, everywhere you stream. They have to have confidence with Devin Singletary, especially if you're playing from the lead. But you have to give him an opportunity to do well. Right, Last year, they abandoned him so quickly, he did not have an opportunity to do well. Obviously, they were still mixing in Zach Moss and some other faces. But he got 16 carries for 81 yards. It's a 5.1 average. Your backs are averaging 5 Yards per carry in the playoffs. You're going to keep giving him the ball. He got a touchdown. Josh Allen ran the ball six times for 66 yards as well. So as a team, the Bills ran for 174 yards and two touchdowns. That, that's a great winning recipe come January, come February. And they gave the ball to their, their playmakers. Josh Allen's favorite target, Dawson Knox. Five targets, uh, five receptions, 89 yards and two touchdowns. He said he was even trying to throw one away. Dawson Knox reached back, somehow snagged that sucker for the first score of the game. Uh, it just seemed like everything was going right for the for the the Bills. They knew where they were the better team. They wanted to come in and dominate, and they dominated. Stephon Diggs, you would expect him to have a little bit more of a playmaking game, but you didn't need to when you're playing up this big. But he was still involved, right? Three catches for 60 yards. He had a 45-yard catch, right? That was a big play earlier in the game. For the Bills. For the Patriots, Mac Jones, 24 of 38, 232, two touchdowns, two picks. Um, a very Mac Jones ish line, right? He is very young into his career uh, with not a lot of pieces. That, that line does not surprise me very much at all. And the running back duo is obviously a force to be reckoned with, but when you are, you know, the Bills are just scoring touchdown after touchdown right out the gates. You're going to have to revert from your, your your run game. This wasn't the case for the Raiders. But Damian Harris had nine carries for 30 yards. Stevenson, eight for 27. They both averaged just above three. And then Kendrick Bourne, probably their most consistent receiver, right? He's getting some action. Seven catches, 77 yards, and two touchdowns on the day. If you do daily fantasy in the playoffs, you swoop up Kendrick Bourne. I'm assuming like $14 or some shit like that. You probably had a good day. I did not do that. Now, 
The Pats defense, no sacks on Josh Allen, no standouts uh, defensively or interceptions. But the Bills defense, they were able to get to Mac Jones three times as a unit. Micah Hyde with an interception and Levi Wallace. What a dynamic backfield and secondary the Bills have, even without their shutdown corner, Tredavious White. The Bills finished 6-7 on third. The Pats 7-14 on third, 4-4 on fourth. You know, they fought and clawed. They did their thing as much as they could. You just cannot slow down the superior team. The Bills did out-yard the Pats by 180. They were plus two in the turnover differential and outpossessed the Bills or the Pats by three minutes. Bye-bye, Patriots. I was pumped. You know, as a Steelers fan, I just don't know if I could ever root for that team again. But uh, we move into Sunday. Sunday's action started, eh, you know, not not amazingly. Like coming off the heels of the Bills game, you know, I'm wanting to watch some some later games to keep my Saturday going, keep the beverages flowing. And that wasn't the case. Sunday, I was glad they put this as the Sunday morning game because uh, this didn't add much more excitement to the fire. But again, this is a completely more superior team. A 9-8 and eight team, most, like, most of the time, isn't going to get in the playoffs. They found a way. Props to them. Sirianni and crew. Jalen Hurts, the leader of this team. You know, props to you for getting there. But you don't belong, especially against the defending champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And this was very relevant, right? A, a team that lives through the run game, the Bucs shut that shit down, right? A guy in Jalen Hurts who really isn't a true pocket passer, Tom Brady is. It was just a complete, you know, a 180 from each side uh, of the depth chart. And you could you tell what could happen. I thought with the lack of weapons, the Tampa Bay offense would struggle against the Eagles defense and this would be a closer game. And that wasn't the case. But Tom Brady finished 29-37, 271 yards and two touchdowns. He was sacked four times. The run game for the Bucs wasn't too existent, but they kept going through it, right? You're playing from the lead. You got to give these guys a chance. Uh, They gave Keyshawn Vaughn 17 carries. He only got 53 yards and a touchdown. They gave Giovanni Bernard 13 carries. He only had 44 yards and a touchdown. Both rushers averaged right above a a three-yard per carry average. But again, okay, no Chris Godwin, no AB, the crazy motherfucker that he is. He's a huge piece to that offense. No Ronald Jones, no playoff Lenny. Who who, who are the Bucs going to give to the ball? What do you think Tom Brady is doing as the GOAT? I'm sure he has a lot of pull in in the rooms of game planning and play calling. We're going to give the ball to fucking Mike Evans and no one on that team is going to stop him. Nine catches, 117 yards and a touchdown. That'll do the trick. You know, they put up 31 points. They were in good field position. They had some turnovers and uh, they started out the gates early. The Eagles weren't able to do that. Jalen throwing 43 times. That is not a, a script for the Eagles to win a game. He was 23 of 43, 258 yards, a touchdown and two picks for a 60 rating. And he led the team in rushing eight carries for 39 yards. The only other rusher to really get some opportunity was Miles Sanders, who had seven carries for 16 yards. It's a 2.3 per carry average. You know, for a team that averages 250 plus rushing yards a game, they had 95 yards as a unit. And Dallas Godert did lead the team in receiving with 92 yards on six catches but he did have 12 targets. 
And they gave Devonta Smith 11 targets as well, but only had four of them for 60 yards. Kenneth Gainwell, the RB2, had a, a touchdown um, catch as a receiver. Jalen Rager, the disappointing receiver, a guy that I thought would translate well into the NFL onto this team that was so much lacking a receiver, uh, fumbled the ball and lost it. He fumbled it twice, but only lost once. For the Eagles defense, Alex Singleton. I believe this is the Bobcat. Yeah, boo. No, I'm just kidding. I like rooting for the FCS guys no matter what school they go to as long as they're not still uh, uh, affiliated with that team. But the Bozeman Bobcat at Alex Singleton, 16 tackles, a sack, four tackles for a loss, and a QB hit. What a performance that he was able to have. And Anthony Harris with 13 tackles. Ryan Kerrigan, three tackles, a sack and a half, two tackles for a loss, and two QB hits. As they were able to get to Tom Brady four times as a unit. But they were on the field for a lot of the game. Uh, the Bucks defense... Was led uh, or was able to get two sacks on Jalen Hurts. Shaquille Barrett, thanks for coming back. He got an interception. Mike Edwards with an interception for the Bucks as well. The Bucks are only four of thirteen on third down and zero for one on fourth. The Eagles five of fourteen on third and one for three on fourth. The Buccaneers only out yarded the, the Eagles by ten, but they were plus three in the turn turnover department. Tom Brady's in a plus advantage in the turnover differential. He's going to find a way to win the game, and that was the case here. They also outpossessed the Eagles by seven minutes. But this was my assumptive game of the weekend. The Cowboys hosting the Niners. The Niners, my preseason Super Bowl pick. Um, a team that very well could have picked to go back in this year and that can. But the Cowboys roster, you know, year in and year out, just has so much damn talent. And they don't do shit with it. This is what I mean. You've got to give the ball to your playmakers. Well, the, the Niners were up big most of the game. The Cowboys had a valiant effort at the end. The, the Niners did escape 23-17. to 17. There was some controversy at the end of the game. It was funny. I was telling my friend as they were running this last, I don't remember, 40-second, you know, no timeout situational football just getting chuck games, throwing it out of the backfield. Everyone's playing deep zone. They were able to cruise up the sideline, get out, do quick out routes. They were able to use that cushion to their advantage. And I said, hey, they should run a QB draw and, and quickly go down and, and spike the ball. And that's exactly what they drew. Mike McCarthy and everyone, you know, he gets so much harsh criticism on this. But guess what? That the spike does go through. They get the touchdown. You know, they're, 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 we don't have this conversation. They're, they win the game 24 to 17. You know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. It was a fourth down, and they went for it on that drive, and they shouldn't have, and there was a field goal involved. You know, they get it. He's a hero. They don't. He doesn't. Um, I actually like the play call because with the zone scheme that they're leaving, it was so wide open. It's either that or you take a couple attempts to the end zone. You have the receivers that could do that, so that might not have been a terrible choice. right? A lot of people, you know, want to say that that's what you should have done. But I like, you know... How many times in practice are they practicing 15-yard? I can't remember exactly where the ball would have been. 15-yard, 20-yard plays into the end zone, our best touchdown play. Um, I'm, I'm sure they would have liked to be in that position, and that's why they called that, that draw. The issue was, at first I was pissed. I was like, wait, what the fuck? The ref comes through, hits Dak, grabs the ball, moves it away from him, respots it, so then when he spikes, he's about a half a second short. I was like, damn, that should be some rule that they should add at least a second or give him a snap of the ball because he moved the ball out. He ran into him. You know, 
the biggest thing we need to take a back and assess is none of this fucking matters. The Cowboys let a team come in to Jerry Jones' world, there's all this fucking money, this big scene and everything, and let them handle them. They let them play their game of football, and they did not give their playmakers the ball. That's the that, that's all that matters. So this shit does not matter. But coming back into the moment, I, w- I was just kind of flustered. Obviously, I had money on the Cowboys. I put them in my parlay. Uh, so that was frustrating. But I'm like, okay, this is weird. But to, to you know, I, I think they said in the studio show after, if you're Dak, the first thing you should do is give the ump and the official the ball for them to set you up for you to spike that. You know, this is the end of the game. Your whole season's on the line. There's a lot going through your head. So it's a tough situation. But you would think if they called that draw play, it's something that had been practiced. I was thinking in my mind that would be a great play to call. And it didn't end up working out. But again, none of that should have fucking happened in the first place. Um, but I'm not too, too, I'm not going to brutalize McCarthy or whoever called that play that, oh, you don't know what the fuck you're doing. This is terrible. I liked it. I thought it, I know what I'm talking about. So let's get back to what had actually transpired. So what did the Niners do? They gave the ball to their fucking playmakers. Debo Samuel came off the sideline, looked at fucking Kyle Shanahan and said, give me the ball. He mouthed that Kyle Shanahan said, damn. I'm going to give Debo Samuel the ball. I don't give a fuck what the play call is. If the offensive coordinator called the play, I don't give a shit. I'm telling Jimmy, we're giving the ball to Debo. He ran through the game-winning touchdown and got the job done. What did the Cowboys do? They did not give the ball to their playmakers. C.D. Lamb had one catch for 21 yards. The weakness of the um, San Francisco 49ers is their secondary. You're telling me that you cannot beat them up with Amari Cooper, CeeDee Lamb, and even Cedric Wilson, who had a decent game, and you're not going to give those guys the ball in, in a must-win situation? You, you're telling me that they can't beat um, Dre Greenlaw, Emmanuel Mosley, Jaquiski Tart? I do know Jimmy Ward and Josh Norman, but, like, come on. What in the actual – the game just, it just makes no sense to me. Please help me make it make sense. Um, the 49ers do what you do to win playoff football. Don't let Jimmy do have to do too much. He finished 16 to 25, 172 yards. He did have an interception, but they were able to overcome that. Let's run the shit out of the rock. They ran the ball as a team 38 times for 169 yards. It's a 4.4 average. It's enough to win football games, two touchdowns. Elijah Mitchell had 27 of those things for 96 yards. He was right under a four yard per carry average he did find the end zone but Debo Samuel RB1 fuck wide receiver one RB1 he is Corderell Patterson in flesh uh, but better physical more physical younger 10 carries 72 yards and a touchdown I mean sheesh and then on the uh, receiving core they were led by Brandon Ayuk with 66 yards on five catches Debo chipped in for 38 yards as well I just can't believe the Cowboys, man. Dak threw it for 43 times. Sure, that's fine. They were playing down. I, th- I think they should have involved the run a little bit more. But he was 23 of 43, so not the best game when we look at the completion percentage here. Um, 254, a touchdown and a pick. QBR a 27, rating a 69.3. They gave Zeke the ball 12 times for 31 yards. He averaged 2.6. 
Tony Pollard comes in. He had four carries for 14 yards. I think you need to give Zeke at least 15 carries. You need to give Pollard at least 10, in my opinion, that script. That's what I'm focusing early on, on first and second down. And what am I doing on third down? I'm giving my playmakers, the best receiver, best receiving core potentially in the league, an opportunity. So the receiving core was led by tight end Dalton Schultz. Seven catches, 89 yards. A lot of that was actually at the end of the game. Amari Cooper had 64 yards on six catches, but he did have 10 targets for a touchdown. Cedric Wilson, pretty similar. 10 targets, five catches that he brought in for 62 yards. CeeDee Lamb did have five targets, but one catch for 21 yards. It just makes you wonder, what in the hell? Defensively for the Cowboys, Leighton Vanderesh with 13 tackles. A guy that's gotten a lot of criticism, right? Obviously, Smith left. Uh, that didn't work out. Now they're talking about Vanderesh having his weaknesses and his holes. But damn, that huge tackle that he had for them before the fourth down to stop the momentum of another drive, that was some big-time shit. He, he had some big-time plays in this game. Anthony Brown came down with an interception for the boys. The Niners had Emmanuel Mosley with 12 tackles. They were able to get to Dak five times as a unit. And Quan Williams had an interception for the Niners. The Cowboys, 5 of 14 on third down, 1 for 2 on fourth. The Niners, 6 of 13 on third down. The Niners out yarded the Cowboys by 40. Both teams turned the ball over, and the Niners outpossessed the Cowboys by seven minutes. And then the Sunday night game, I go to the Emerald Queen Casino here uh, out in the Seattle area. It was in, T in Tacoma. They have this new MGM sports book. Got some cool seats, got some food, some wings, had some drinks. It was a good time. The start of the game was a good time, but, you know, I didn't have a lot of expectations. It was nice to not have to worry about that expectations. I was more riled up by a fan sitting next to me talking shit on Ben Roethlisberger and how Phillip Rivers is a better quarterback. Um, I'm actually going to write this down just because, yeah, I was fired up. I'd had a few beverages. You know, no way to piss a Steeler off when it's Big Ben's last game, first ballot Hall of Famer. You're going to talk shit about how bad he is and that Phillip Rivers is better. You want to get a way to get me fired up, that's an easy way to do so. Phillip Rivers versus Eli. We'll throw Eli in there just for fun versus Ben. Some good offseason football shit. But, yeah, that fired me up. But, you know, I wasn't as focused into the game. It was... You know, the Steelers' defense, after a while, just let the Chiefs do whatever they want, and we weren't running the ball. Um, coming in, I thought the only way the Steelers could win is if Najee gets 25 to 30 carries. They have a good game script, getting first downs, keeping Pat Mahomes off the, f the, the field, and probably a minimum plus two in the turnover differential. I don't even know. Yeah, so they were neither. So uh, the final score, 42 to 21. The Chiefs' offense is legit, right? A lot of people just want to say, oh, Big Ben, the Steelers, they didn't belong, right? They're 9-7-1, and one, yada, yada. They barely got in, but they have a legit defense. They have the defensive player of the year on their team. If he doesn't get defensive player of the year, the shit's rigged. They have a solid defense, and Pat Mahomes, Andy Reid, and crew were able to just slice them up the way they did. Hell of a game plan, hell of a game plan. And you got to love playoffs because you almost knew a guy like Jarek McKinnon would be the, the game changer. You almost knew it, you know, re reviving his career. 
Uh, but Pat Mahomes was 30 of 39, 404 yards, and five touchdowns. I'm sorry, AFC, but no one is going to be able to stop this team unless Derrick Henry, Henry has the performance of his life. The Titans and Tannehill don't turn the ball over once and are plus two or three in the turnover department. But damn, what a day by uh, Pat Mahomes. And then Jarek McKinnon, reviving his career. He only got 12 carries, but he amassed 61 yards. It's a 5.1 average. He also added 81 yards as a receiver and a touchdown. That was the athleticism that other teams had seen in his career, specifically um, the Vikings and Niners. If I have that correct, yep. The Vikings and Niners. Um, but the Chiefs are able to take advantage of it with Clyde's Edwards Hilaire not able to play or Jarrell Williams. The receiving core was led by, of course, their playmaker. No surprise. A, a Super Bowl winning, potential winning team going to their playmakers. Uh, Travis Kelsey, five catches, 108 yards and a touchdown. As a Steelers fan, you're not surprised by that. Tyree Kill even got a touchdown. Brian Pringle, two touchdowns. Uh, everyone have some fun. Uh, some of the celebrations were getting out of control. They just they just knew what was about to happen. And I almost went to Kansas City for this. I still don't know how it would have felt being in there in person, but being an Arrowhead playoff football, I think that would have been a fun experience regardless. Uh, defensively, they got to Big Ben twice, but no standouts defensively. For the Steelers, Big Ben is final game, 29 of 44, 215, two touchdowns. He went out with the valiant effort. As Mike Tomlin said, Ben was seven. Seven, just doing his thing. Um, Najee, though, 12 carries for 29 yards. It's only a 2.4 average. A lot of these carries were early. The first couple drives, first, second down, didn't get a lot of action. I'm sure the Chiefs are prepared for some run game. Uh, but you got to adapt. You got to scheme it up a little bit. But we have to find a way to give Najee the ball. And that wasn't the case. He didn't get any. He had two catches for negative one yards. Those are bailout bell check downs by Big Ben. Uh, but James Washington, of all people, led the team in receiving 37 yards and a touchdown. Deontay Johnson had 10 targets, but only five catches. Uh, a game to forget for him. You know, all this issue with the drops the, the year before and having such a good season, it just did not make sense. It just seemed like receivers were quitting on routes. They weren't running the right routes. It just, it, it was it was a hot mess for Pittsburgh. Um, but you got to give Claypool, uh, Deontay, or Juju, you got to give your playmakers the ball, man. Um, Najee Harris did lose his first fumble, right? The stat of him not fumbling all year. Uh, he did get a fumble to finish the season. Um, so, so that was no fun, but how about TJ Watt with that scoop and score, man? I lost my fucking mind. Um, I thought the Steelers might have a chance at the time. I was looking at live betting them. I'm so glad I did not, but give that man his award. Um, elsewhere for the Steelers defense, three sacks as a unit, Devin Bush with an interception, little tip interception. Hopefully this man, uh, you know, has a great off season and is a pivotal part of the Steelers defense. I believe they have the option to decline his fifth year option. That's looking like it's going to be 11 million. So he might not be on the team next year, but, uh, yeah, a, a lot of capital they gave up to get him with the 10th pick in the draft. Statistically, the Chiefs were 8 of 12 on third. The Steelers, 7 of 16, 2 for 2 on fourth. The Chiefs outyarded the Steelers by 120. They were plus one in the turnover department. Both teams had the uh, ball for 30 minutes on the dot. And then Monday came around. This was the only game I picked to cover. All teams ended up covering. 
Um, I'm not too surprised about this. The, the, the Cardinals are very reminisc of the Steelers last year when they were 11 and 0 having a hot, hot start kind of crumbling down and everyone wants to, you know, Kyler Murray is not good enough. Kyler Murray is not a franchise quarterback. Yada, yada, yada. This team has so overperformed. Nobody thought they would be here or come out. You know, I had them as barely missing the playoffs. I had them as a competitive unit, but their way, their defense stepped up, their running backs played. They're completely not healthy right now. I could, I, I could go on record, I'm sure, confidently and say that James Conner and Chase Edmonds were a shell of themselves within the season. And you don't have DeAndre Hopkins, right? Take Devontae Adams out of the Packers' defense. What does that offense look like? Is everyone just going to blame Aaron Rodgers that he's not good enough, this and that? Now, did Kyler Murray have some boneheaded plays? Absolutely. Is there a reason to give him some criticism? Absolutely. He's 24 years old, right? He's younger than Joe Burrow, remind you. I think he's going to be all right. I think he's going to be all right. People need to chill on that. And that's not because I'm just a Sooner fan. Uh, but everyone's so, you know, everyone wants a hot take. I want a hot take, right? I do a sports podcast. I love having hot takes. But, like, we, we can't just jump to these assumptions, right? Now, supposedly, Joe Burrow's the next Tom Brady. I heard someone fucking say that. Like, this shit is just so preposterous. And what people say, they have no censors, right? They're typically already famous people that could say whatever they want. They have a brand. They could do any kind of job, whatever they want, because they built this brand. The hard work and their, their, the, the, the work ethic and all the things they've done to get there, they, they've earned that right. I get that. But the shit that comes out of people's mouths sometimes is ridiculous. If you're going to tell me Kyler Murray is not an NFL starting quarterback or that he cannot handle the you know being with the Cardinals, you're fucking full of yourself. Uh, watch some damn tape. But um, regardless of that, the Rams, uh, they've put all of their chips in the middle, right? They have blindly, they didn't even look at their cards. Just said, I'm fucking all in. What do I need? I need Von Miller. I need this. I need this. We need no picks. They literally got Eric Weddle at 37 years old off the goddamn street for this game. And this is exactly how it should have transpired. There, there, there should not be a lot of, ooh, I thought this, or ooh, I thought that, right? And I think the Rams are going to show people when they go into Tampa Bay and beat the defending Super Bowl champions next week. But uh, I'm surprised that as many people picked the Cardinals as they did. They're vastly overperforming. It's like the Bengals right now. I'm not going to take the Bengals over the Titans. Are you fucking kidding me? And if you guys disagree, let me know. I'll bet you guys straight up. But I could use some. I could use some extra cash. Uh, but Matt Stafford was 13 and 17, 202 and two touchdowns. You know he's got to love being in LA. They actually had a home filled crowd, which was awesome to see. You know he loves playing for this team and all these weapons and being out of the purgatory locker that Detroit is. Life must be nice. OBJ chipped out in the action too. He had a nice 40-yard pass. But Sonny Michelle had 13 carries for 58 yards. It's a 4.5 average. Cam Akers off the Achilles injury. He tore his damn Achilles preseason. And he's out here playing ball. He got 17 carries. That's how much confidence they have in him. He had 55 yards, which is only a 3.2 average, so Michelle ran the ball a little bit better. But having two guys now going to the playoff football, going to Lambeau, you're going to need a lot of these guys if you're going to want to match up with the Packers, right? Um, you know, I'm not too worried about the Bucks and, and their sake. We'll get to that. But, uh, you know, handling the one-two punch of A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, it's a, it's a nice luxury for them to have. 
Cooper Cup did his thing. 61 yards on five catches and a touchdown. OBJ with the touchdown on 54 yards as well. But they weren't forced to do too much with the turnovers and the field position that they had. The uh, offense for the Cardinals, Kyler was 19 to 34, 137 and two touchdowns. It's a 7.6 QBR and a 40 rating. Chase Edmonds got the ball eight times for 28 yards. It's only a 3.5 average. James Conner had four carries for 19. That's a 4.8 average and a touchdown. And then Christian Kirk, as has you know, since Hopkins has left, leads the way again. He had 11 targets, but only six catches for 51 yards. Um, I would have liked to see the Cardinals add in some more run game to the to their script, but I you know them falling behind uh, had a lot to do with that. Plus, the running backs are not healthy. And Kyler Murray barely ran the ball at all. Uh, defensively for the Rams, they got to Kyler Murray two times. David Long Jr. had an interception. For, uh, it was actually a pick six. And Marquise Copeland with an interception as well. And for the Cardinals defense, Jalen Thompson with 12 tackles. Uh, they were able to get to Stafford one time as a unit. The Rams ended up finishing 6-13 on third down. Pretty solid conversion. The Cardinals a terrific 0 for 9, 1 for 2 on fourth down. Again, third down, you got to go to your playmakers. You got to have your go twos. Um, Zach Ertz only finished with three carries or three catches. And uh, yeah, I mean, AJ Green's been underperforming. Like, there, there's a lack of talent without DeAndre Hopkins. Let's just say that. Um, they were 1 for 2 on fourth. The Rams out yarded the Cardinals by 109 or by 90. No, let's see. Yeah, 190. And they were plus two in the turnover differential and out possessed the Cardinals by 11 minutes. Super uh, wild card weekend in the books. Boy, do we got some damn games today. So I already talked to you. You know, the only difference here is 49ers, Packers. I already talked to you who I expect to win the rest of the games, and I'm going to stick with those. There's not going to be a lot of changes there. But Saturday on CBS, we get to start with Tannehill and the Titans coming off the bye week with Derrick Henry back in action. If you don't think he'll be activated by Saturday, you're fooling yourself. But Vegas has Tennessee as a three-and-a-half-point favorite at home. I'm taking the Titans, and I'm taking them to cover. This game could get ugly early if that run def uh, that run game gets rolling. They could physically abuse a very young Bengals team, uh, uh, an average, maybe above-average defense, and uh, A.J. Brown's going to have his way. They have nobody that they can put on him. So I assume that the Titans handle this pretty good. The Titans are going to be a talk of the town after this game, and I think people are going to talk of the, about them as a true Super Bowl contender, which they very well are. They very well are. Now, they did have the bye week. The Bengals have that momentum. They just came off a win. Um, they, they did have some injuries and some you know players that they'll be missing, so they didn't come out unscathed. But sometimes having that week off uh, doesn't benefit a team. I don't think that'll be the case here. I think the, the, the Titans win by double digits. And then the night game. Oh, boy, what a game this is going to be. The Packers are hosting the Niners, and I haven't even looked. Look at me. I haven't even looked. What is the weather in Green Bay? 10-day forecast for Saturday night. It's going to be a chilly motherfucking game. The forecast on Saturday is a high of 22, a low of 2. 
So it's going to be right about zero probably during the game. So it's going to be chilly. Uh, that is for sure. Shouldn't be too much wind or anything else of that nature. Um, but the Vegas has the Packers winning by six against the Niners. Now, when I break this game down, the Niners are going to play very similarly. You know, that's their winning formula as they did uh, against the Cowboys who have a lot of offensive weapons and offensive firepower potential, but they're not dealing with Aaron Rodgers in his home field. They're not uh, dealing with a true number one receiver such as Devontae Adams. I'm not saying the Cowboys are lacking of one, but you know, we're talking a top three receiver in the NFL and a true one, two running combo punch of AJ Dillon and Aaron Jones. And I think the Niners are just, they're kind of limping their way in. They had a good win. Can Debo do a lot? Yes. But is he going to be able to do enough? You know, Yair Alexander coming back. Zadarius Smith being back. I think this is just, you look at the, the teams and it's too lopsided. Could the 49ers pull it off? Sure. But they're not going to be able to have any turnovers and they're going to need Jimmy G to make big plays. Kittle's going to have to be involved. And when I mean involved, he needs to have 10 targets or 10 catches, you know, maybe 13, 14 targets. I think they're really going to have to put the ball down the field to be able to keep up with the scoring. They're not going to be able to run all game. Um, the Niners did beat the Packers in the playoffs with the Shanahan offense running the ball. It was uh, Raheem Mostert, if memory serves me correct, that sliced them up. So is that possible? Yes. But is the Packers defense better than uh, previous? I 100% think so. I am going to take the Packers. Six points. I'm going to take them to cover with the six as well. I'm going to have to put a nice little parlay in here. Um, after me not thinking anyone would cover, now they're all going to cover. Ah, fuck. I don't know. I'm back and forth on the six points, but uh, the Packers are going to win and head to the NFC Championship. And then on Sunday, we start with Buccaneers, Rams. What a game. What a game. Uh, Buccaneers are favored by three, according to Vegas. I think the Rams, the biggest difference in this game is the health and the playmakers on both sides of the ball. Right? You have Mike Evans, Leonard Fournette, Ronald Jones, not looking like they'll play. If Leonard Fournette, Jones completely doesn't look like he's playing. If Fournette does somehow play, you know, he's not going to be playing with a lot of health. Mike Evans has been forced to do a lot. He's been battling some injuries himself. But now that you have Jalen Ramsey, you know, I think Jalen Ramsey very well could shadow Mike Evans. So then what? Um, obviously, there's Rob Gronkowski. I think Rob's going to have a day. I think Rob's going to be majority of their offense in this game. But how can, you know, can they stop Akers and Sonny Michelle? Sure. But how are you going to stop the uh, the rest of the offense of the Niners? OBJ has been, been very clutch for them. Cooper Cup. Now, this is in Tampa Bay. It's supposed to be nice weather there, actually. Let's see if there's any wind. 10-day forecast. Could be Sunday. That's 60 degrees. It's gonna be, these players are going to love that. Partly cloudy, 11-mile-an-hour wind. So I don't expect you know the weather to be a, a factor at all. You know Maybe the Rams cramping a little bit, dehydrated a little bit. But I just like the defense too much for the Rams over what the the Bucks are limping into the playoffs with. And I think Stafford's going to show up. 
a lot of this is going to be riding on Stafford. There's a lot of pressure for him this game. You know, Tom Brady's going to do his thing. When in doubt, he's going to give it to Gronkowski just like uh, Burrow does Jamar Chase. It's going to be a fucking battle. I think um, I, I would like to take the plus three on the Rams, to be honest, if, if I'm going to have to pick. But I am picking the Rams to win on the road. I think this is a must-have game for them. And uh, it's never easy winning as a defending Super Bowl champ, plus all the injuries that they have. It's it's simple as uh, uh, that's uh, you know that's the storyline. It's simple enough. We don't have to overcomplicate this. Moving into Sunday, the AFC Championship rematch. You know, Stephon Diggs posting the photo uh, where he took the still image of him looking at the Chiefs celebrate uh, last year as they earned their Super Bowl bid, and he you know the revenge game. And I love the narrative. I love that the Bills take this to heart. I love Josh Allen as a playmaker, but they don't have enough pieces in the right places unless they're able to run the ball over a hundred. If Singletary can run over a hundred yards and they cannot make, and they don't make any mistakes, it's possible. But what what we just saw with the Chiefs, their defense playing decent football, I don't see a team that's going to be able to match them this season. The only team, potentially the, the Packers, and I had to actually pick the Packers over the Chiefs in my postseason prediction. Uh, but that Chiefs team looked nasty, boy. And if anyone's going to be able to scheme up a good uh, scheme against the Bills, it's going to be Andy Reid, right? you got to pressure Josh Allen. And really, at the end of the day, when it comes to your offense, just do what you already do, right? They have enough weapons. Um, Tyreek Hill has not had Tyreek Hill-less numbers that over the top thing, you know, I'm not sure if it's completely that two safety look or what, what have it. Um, but whether it's Clyde Edwards, Hilaire, Jarek McKinnon, I think they're going to be able to cut the bills up on the run game as well. And it's going to be a nice, um, not like a 50, 50 split, but it's going to be a nice, even offensive flow for Kansas city. I'm going to take Kansas city to cover at home to beat the bills and head to the AFC championship once again. So I'm taking Titans to cover Packers not to cover uh, Rams on the upset. You know, if you're, you're betting man plus three to be safe and I'm taking the chiefs to cover at home. It's crazy that the spread is that, you know, one game for the, the Pats and the spread is one and a half for Kansas city. I think that's a, that's an easy cover personally. But these are going to be great games. Um, the only game that I, I I would say that I'm completely comfortable with, as long as for some reason Derrick Henry doesn't play, I'm very comfortable with taking the Titans in Tennessee off the bye week with their playmakers over the Bengals. Other than that, I would not be surprised if anybody else won that I picked against. Maybe the Bills. I would be surprised if the Bills won. Uh, but this is going to be a great slate of football, and I do not expect there to be as lopsided of games as we saw last week. But before we talk hoops, because hoops is going to be a, a big segment in the show moving forward with football dwindling down, we do have some headlines in the college football landscape. Chip Kelly staying with UCLA. I thought this was kind of a surprise, but he signs a four-year extension to stay with uh, the Bruins um, and their football unit moving forward. He does get the, his quarterback, um, Dorian Thompson, I believe, coming back as well. Mario Williams is transferring from Oklahoma to USC. Yeah, um, just I'm not surprised. You know, Caleb Williams, why he hasn't been announced, what's going on there, I'm not sure. But Riley's pretty much taken his whole his whole recruiting bag with him out of Norman, 
and uh, walking into USC and LA uh, with them. And yeah, I'm not surprised, but Mario Williams is a stud. Big loss for Oklahoma. Quarterback Chuba Purdy to transfer from Nebraska to Nebraska from uh, Florida State. So they get a, a young quarterback. Jalil Billingsley transfers from Texas uh, from Alabama to Texas. Uh, tight end receiver, big body guy going to Texas. Uh, that'll be a great addition to the um, to the Longhorns team. Hunter Johnson transferring back to Auburn from Northwestern. He had started there, four-star prospect. Um, obviously, Bo Nix leaving um, Auburn. He has an opportunity to get in the starting job. And then JT Daniels with Stetson Bennett returning to Georgia enters the transfer portal. That's going to be a fun one to track to see where he wants to go. I'm still curious really what led to JT Daniels not getting a starting opportunity again after being hurt. Um, but I, you know, that, that Georgia team was so good. It didn't really matter who they started, but I think JT Daniels at the end of the day is a better quarterback, especially when we look in the NFL than Stetson Bennett. And this is a guy that could really change a team. Uh, so here towards the end of the transfer portal, free agency period, we might as well call it. I'm very excited to see where he goes. <clears throat> and before we, I talked about hoops, man, we got UFC, baby. UFC was back in action. It was a fun little fight night card. And we have some more fights booked up that are coming. That's really exciting. Dana White, no surprise here, confirms that Leon Edwards will be taking on the Nigerian nightmare, Kamaro Usman. That is going to be a blast of a fight. Leon gets his opportunity. It's not booked with a date and, a, you know, in a location yet. Uh, but there, there should be no surprises there that that's going to be happening. Aliyah Topiria needed a, a fill-in fight. He got a late replacement. Charles Jordan filling in after Evloev um, uh, draw, withdraws from the bout. So great to see that he gets an opponent for this week's fight card. Uh, Greg Hardy needed an opponent. Sergey Spivak filled in. But Hardy got out with a crazy finger injury. Um, so I'm not sure if Spivak's going to get a late uh, addition since he is a late addition. I'm assuming that that's just going to be off. Uh, but that would have been a fun fight. I I'd like to see Greg Hardy back in the octagon. Francis Ngannou announces that he won't fight in the UFC past the Cyril Gon fight. <clears throat> I don't know how much to believe this. I do think that he wants to fight Tyson Fury, and that's pretty much a done deal. After this UFC bout, that's a huge moneymaker for both men. But I would not be surprised if he came back on the UFC unless he wants to take that boxing money and completely retire. Uh, or, you know, I, I don't see him joining a Bellator or a PFL. If he's going to stay in MMA, it's going to be the UFC. So I do think he goes and takes that boxing bout and comes back. And I don't think Dana White really gives a shit. Miguel Beza is going to fight Diego Lima. That's going to be a fun one. Beza's had a little rough patch, but he's, you know, a promising prospect against the old Ultimate Fighter uh, alum, Diego Lima. <clears throat> Nate Diaz and Dustin Poirier today have been jabbering with Dana online, but supposedly uh, Dustin Poirier and Nate Diaz is not going to happen, uh, but the fighters are trying to do as much as they can to vouch for that. I hope that happens. That's the fight the fans want. Dana, make it happen. Patty Pimlet taking on Jared Gordon, uh, one of the hype trains uh, in the UFC. You know, he wants to be the next Connor, yada, yada. Everyone's saying all this shit. He's going to take on Jared Gordon, a guy that you don't want to fuck with either. So that's going to be a fun fight. Ian Gary, another hyped up prospect taking on Darian Weeks. And then a banger alert here is Khalil Roundtree Jr. 
is officially booked versus Carl Roberson. That'll be a fun one. Tough news for the UFC. The PFL is close to acquiring Kayla Harrison. Seems pretty much like a done deal. The ability to win a million dollars. I'm sure the women in the UFC, you know, that she's not getting offered nearly that kind of money. And she's just assumed that she's going to walk through that division and win again. Uh, and, and I'm sure she will. So I uh, would love to see her in the UFC potential bouts against Nunez and other people. But it uh, looks like she's going to be going to the PFL. Mike Tyson versus Jake Paul. I don't believe this is official, but looks like this is going to be happening. There had been rumblings and rumors of this happening before the last you know, fight with uh, Fury before he pulled out and Woodley. Uh, but that's just wild that a YouTube blogger from Disney going to be fighting fucking Mike Tyson. I mean, what is Jake Paul, like 24? They're 25 years old versus 55 years old. 30-year difference only in 2022. What a fucking world we live in. Great. My Jazz just lost to the fucking Rockets. No Donovan Mitchell. My teams are going through a rough patch right now. Uh, but let's review the fight night card. ESPN on thir- or ESPN 32, whatever the fuck you want to call it. It seems like everyone calls them different names. Um, but some fights we didn't dive into. Court McGee and Brian Kelleher with some decent wins. And then we had the heavyweights. I uh, busted my parlay right out the gate here. Uh, but Jake Collier with the first round submission over Chase Sherman. To me, this was really a, a must-win fight for both fighters coming off losses, trying to keep their UFC career going. And the fight started with some big shots. Collier was landing some big shots. Chase had a huge uppercut, was getting some big shots. Then he had slipped. Jake had landed on top. And that's really all she wrote. With a lot of these bigger heavyweights that you know aren't into wrestling, grappling, it's really just a slugfest. I'm not too surprised. Even if he was able to get out of the first round, I'm sure he would have been so gassed going into round two. So once that happened, I, I knew that was all she wrote. Um, Chase Sherman is now on a three-fight losing streak. Collier starts a new winning streak. Uh, moving forward, I could see Collier, or Sherman taking on Harry Hunsucker and Jake Collier taking on Chris Barnett, who's had some nice wins in the UFC, or Parker Porter to get that momentum coming back in the heavyweight division. And what a crazy fight this fight, <clears throat> this fight was in the flyweights. Brandon Rod Dog Royval with the split decision victory over Rogerio Bontorin. And this was just a crazy fight that, sh- that showcased a lot of determination and really good endurance of cardio from Royval. I mean, Bontorin and his team came in with a, uh, an easy game plan take this motherfucker down and do whatever we can to keep him down. And uh, he definitely did that. He had eight takedowns, he also had 39 total strikes and 28 significant. While Roy Vall, mostly all from his back, had 81 total strikes and 40 significant strikes with three submission attempts in a reversal. And really, Roy Vall was, you know, all these takedowns, he looked fluid, right? He he had his good jujitsu. He was keeping his hips moving. He obviously had some submission attempts, and he was able to do work from the bottom, right? He was doing some nasty elbows up. Uh, he was doing some nice head, sh- uh, some n- nice headshots from the bottom, and he was keeping things going, keeping Ro- uh, Rogerio having to worry about what his next move is or if Royval is going to come in with a submission. Um, so it was very interesting to see. You don't see fights go out, go like this a lot. Um, and really, the big difference was when Bonatorin got Royval down, he didn't do anything with it. After the second round, he got a takedown right out the gate, 
it seemed like he was more gas than Roy Vol and didn't have very much offense. So, you know, he was definitely a bigger framed and bigger bodied guy. Um, if you're going to use wrestling, you got to be aggressive. I'm, I'm sure him and his team thought that he had won the fight with all those takedowns and being on top majority of the fight, right? Fight control, octagon control. But I loved the split decision in Roy Vol's name. Um, there was even a moment where Rival had an armbar in and um, Von Torin tried to get up and raise himself out. And it looked like he had, he had kind of done like a soft tap and maybe he realized that he had some um, space in there and, and didn't. There was no obviously tap called. I'm pretty sure that was a tap. I don't know if I'm pulling my arm out, why I would wrap around and like, you know, grabbing that arm on the uh, Roy Vol's arm here doesn't do anything or leg or whatever was going on. And yeah, I don't know. It doesn't really make sense to me. I thought it was a clear tap. Looking at the slow-mo and slow-mo, you know, it didn't look quite like a tap. But that was really interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, props to Roy Vol for being able to work. Obviously, working on his cardio and his endurance. He's a very well-rounded fighter, and that's why he stays atop of the flyweight. This seems to never really change in the rankings. You know, we have the first back-to-back-to-back trilogy coming up in the flyweight division. But moving forward, Royval starts a new winning streak. He moves up one spot to number four in the flyweight rankings. Bontorin has now lost three in a row with a no contest. Uh, no contest. He stays... Contest. Contest. And he stays at number seven in the rankings. Next up for Royval, I could, you know, he's stuck with the guys ahead of him. Uh, they beat him. So I can see him maybe taking on Cody Garbrandt. I would assume Cody stays in the flyweight division or Alex Perez. For Bontorin, Mathus Nicolau or Matt Schnell um, would be good fights. You know, the first fight he had against Matt Schnell was ruled a no, no contest. Uh, contest is he had a banned substance and, and had a USADA suspension. So I think this would be great fights uh, uh, for Bontorin and Roy Vall moving forward. And then for the women, we had Ka- uh, Caitlin, Catlin, Catlin Chukagian. I think it's Caitlin, but. Uh, Chukagian with the unanimous decision over Jennifer Maya. I mean, this one is just like the script. You know, you have a game plan for Chukagian. This is exactly what had been executed. She has fought Maya before. At the end of the day, she kept her at distance. Just like the first matchup, there was nothing Maya could do about it. Uh, she landed 81 total strikes and 72 significant strikes with a takedown versus Maya's 60 total strikes and 52 significant. Um, Maya lost the first fight in a unanimous decision. She's tough, but Catlin was able to use her length and her reach and her reach advantage to her advantage to piece Maya up. And, uh, you know, this is what I think the Cyril gone fight's going to look like coming up. But Maya now has lost two of three and three of her last five granted against very good opponents. And Shukagian is on a three fight winning streak, staying up at uh, like the gatekeeper of the division. Neither fighter changed their position in the rankings. But I would love to see Chukagian rematch Jessica Andrade, which would be a lot of fun as she's moving uh, into this division or has moved into the division. And for Maya, a fight with Talia Santos or Vivian Arahu makes sense. All those would be a lot of fun. And much like the flyweight division, it's the same ladies up and top. You know, Maya and Chukagian, the people up top have beaten her, yada, yada. Um, So they need some new blood. And then the main event of the evening. I tried telling y'all that Calvin Cater was being vastly underrated in this fight. And he had the unanimous decision victory over Giga Chikadze. Um, 
I really just thought Giga was overhyped and he wasn't well-rounded enough for the big boys in the division. You know, him calling out Volkanovski, I was like, get the fuck out of here. Basically, the top five in featherweight and then the rest. Maybe you could have a case for Josh Emmett coming back from all those knee injuries, looked good against Ige. You know, he might be able to battle up in there. Um, but what I had thought had come to come to truth and fruition, and I'm glad that's the case. But the fight started back and forth. Uh, Giga came out hot, right? He came out Aljamain Sterling hot. He was very mo- uh, mobile, very aggressive. He was landing big shots on Cater, especially with that Giga kick a couple times early. And, you know, Cater definitely respected that. He he kept his cool, calm, cool, like this is a five-round fight, right? Giga don't know how to hang with the five-round fight. I love seeing these main events where a guy has had a five-round fight and, the, you know, round three, they're gassed. Uh, but in the second round, Cater switched stances. And he took the kick ability, the Giga kick per se, away and just started teeing off on Giga. You know, the boxing level that, that Cater has over Giga is is pretty tremendous here. And by round three, Giga was completely gassed. Cater was landing huge shots, spinning elbows. That one that he had that sliced his eye open was nasty. And I was like, how is he still standing? I mean, this guy was getting pieced up. And it's funny that a year prior... Cater was getting treated like that against Max Holloway. A year later, all the improvements in camp, he gets to treat Giga like a punching bag. And it wasn't quite on the level of Holloway. Uh, but it's funny that uh, that's the way things had transpired. I didn't think Giga would make it to the judge's decision. Um, but he's a tough son of a bitch. You know, everything I thought about him was true and came to fruition. But I did become more of a fan. His toughness, his durability and his willingness to keep going, you know, that not a lot of fighters have that. Cater landed 157 total strikes and 144 significant with two takedowns, a knockdown, a reversal, and a submission attempt versus Giga's 129 total and 129 significant strikes with a reversal. Now, neither fighter moves in the rankings, but Giga's nine-fight winning streak comes to an end. Cater starts a new winning streak, and he has won three of his last four. So what's next for these young bloods? Well, for Giga, I think a fight with Dan Ige or Shane Burgos would be electric. For Cater, I think Yair Rodriguez is the guy coming back from uh, the hallway fight. That would be a blast. Or give him Mr. Clean, Mr. Josh Emmett. Let him come in with the big boys and let's see what can happen. Not a lack of fights for either fighter, though. Now this weekend, we got the, the we got the football, and then we get the pay-per-view 7 p.m. main card main event start. Uh, some fights or some fighters that are fighting that I'm not breaking down. Rayoni Barcelos is fighting, Trevin Giles, and Michelle Pieta. I you know he I thought he was supposed to find the last card. I guess it got pushed back to this week or whatever. Um, but I already talked about the guy coming up to make his UFC debut about him. So we'll start with the prelim headliner. Aliyah Topiria, the 24-year-old fighter with 11-0 record and the number 13 next to his name, taking on Charles Air Jordan, 26 years old, with a 12-4-1 record. Now, he is obviously on an 11-fight winning streak. He's 11-0, but three of them are in the UFC. Seven of his 11 wins are via submission, and clearly he's a black belt in BJJ. Jordan... He's won two of his last three. He's on a one-fight winning streak, and he's a black belt in BJJ as well. 
I like the ability of Topiria. He is very young. Jordan's been around a little bit in the UFC longer. But I'm going to take Topiria in this fight. I'm putting him on my parlay. I'm marking that shit down. Let's get that bread. And then this is going to be a fun one. We have Cody the Spartan Stamen, 32 years old, with a 19-4-1 record, taking on, and the number 15 next to his name. Taking on Saeed Nurmagomedov, 29 years old, with a 14-2 and record. Now, Saeed is an orthodox fighter. He's on a one-fight winning streak, and he's 3-1 and one in the UFC. But he hasn't fought since October of 2021. Obviously, COVID, things like that. That last fight was in Abu Dhabi. He does have a 5.5 reach advantage in this fight, though. Cody, he's on a two-fight losing streak. He trains out of Extreme Couture. He has a blue belt in BJJ, and he he's a, has a D2 wrestling background. He wrestled for Grand Valley State University, and, and wrestling is his predominant style. Now, this fight could go one of two ways. Obviously, Cody's going to focus on his wrestling, but for Cody, it's been the lack of um, offensive output besides the wrestling, right? The striking when you're on top, actually doing something with it. We don't need to see another, um, uh, let's see... Bonatorin execution plan here. You can't just take the guy down and lay on him. I'm sure Saeed, you know, he is a Nurmagomedov. I'm sure he'll be prepared for that. But I think Cody does have the advantage. I think Cody does get the job done as the Vegas underdog. So I'm putting him in my parlay. I'm marking that down. Let's get that bread. Plus, he can't lose three in a row. And then the rematch, the back-to-back trilogy, the first trilogy to not have an in, you know a, a fight in between. It's been these guys back to back to back. You know all the other flyweights are so excited for this chapter to close. As Brandon, the assassin baby Moreno, 28 years old with a 19-5 and two record, is taking on Devison Deuce Deguera Figueredo, 34 years old, 22 and one record, and the number one next to his name. And Moreno's obviously the champ. I had predicted a couple episodes ago that Moreno would stay the champ uh, within this division um, for the rest of the year. So this is a huge step forward for that. If you don't know the history of this trilogy, the first fight was a draw. It was a very close fight. Figueredo probably would have won the fight, but he lost a point on repeated groin strikes. Six months later, they fought again. Moreno handed him. Knocked him right on the nose, got him down, and finished via rear naked uh, choke. So, round three. After the round two, I really did not want to see this. I don't think this was going to be the fight. I think there was some issues with some other fighters uh, and abilities for them to find someone for Moreno in the time frame that he wanted to fight. So, insert Figueredo, uh, which is still going to be a good fight. Really, the big difference here is that Figueredo is training with Henry Cejudo, who was the flyweight champion. He's the triple champ, whatever, uh, the king of cringe. He had also trained with Moreno before. So now he is giving a game plan for Figueredo against Moreno. And that makes me almost want to change my decision. The reason I've, I've picked Figueredo the past two times. I thought he won the first fight. I think in the second fight, you know, I was shocked about the improvement of Moreno. Figueredo blames that he was opening up a gym. You know, he's not focused, yada, yada. Henry Cejudo is supposedly going to give him right in the right mentality. But a guy, he's 34 years old. You know, he's had his, you know, f- famedom. And then we have Moreno, 
who's only 28 years old. He's not even in his prime yet. And seeing these leaps that he is taking, I just don't think I could go back and go revert back to Figueredo. Moreno's really upped his game. Um, and he, he's shown to have better endurance in a five-round fight than Figueredo. He's more calculated. And after the last performance, how could he pick against the kid? Um, Moreno has won five of seven. And the other two um, out of those seven were draws. His last loss was in May of 2018. He has a black belt in BJJ, and 11 of his 19 wins are via submission. Figueredo has a black belt in BJJ, and uh, before the loss to Moreno and the draw, he was on a five-fight winning streak. But I'm going to take the assassin, baby. We putting that on the parlay. We marking it down. Let's get that bread. And finally, the main event, and boy, is this going to be a fun one. I watched the UFC promo cut on this. I've been watching the embeddeds all week. We get Cyril Bongaman gain, 31 years old, with the undefeated record of 10 to 0 as the interim champ, versus Francis the Predator Nganu, 35 years old, with the 16 and 3 record. And what a freak of nature this fucker is. Well, within the backstory, if you don't know, now you know. Uh, these two were in the same gym and were sparring partners in France. Um, you know, there had been some clips. There had been some issues. Uh, they were at an arena together, and Ganu walked by Cyril. No one said nothing, so obviously there's some beef here. It's the interim champ versus the real champ. Power versus speed, and just a stylistic clash and, and matchup here. Francis now, he left his old gym, uh, which... Uh, whoops which Cyril Ghosn trains out of the MMA factory. And he now trains with uh, Extreme Couture. I mean, he has been for a little while now. He's on a five-fight winning streak. 12 of his 16 wins are via knockout. And, uh, you know, as Francis said, he doesn't plan on fighting in the UFC after this fight. I don't necessarily agree with that. But this potentially could be the Predators' last UFC bout. Gain has a background in Muay Thai, kickboxing, Jeet Kundu, BJJ, and Judo. He does train out of the MMA factory. He was a Muay Thai champion. Seven of his 10 wins are in the UFC. And like I said, this is just a complete 180 of fi fighter styles, a, a, a stylistic clash. I think Cyril Ghosn is clearly going to be the quicker, more precise striker. He's going to use his in and outs. He's going to use some clinch options, uh, maybe even some wrestling. I think that a good game plan for him is going to be taking Francis down like a lot of the other heavyweights that have beaten him have. And I think Aganu is going to be able to not be so anxious, pick and choose his moments, and Bond Gahman is going to have to be ready. Could Francis clean his lights out? You know, Gahn's never really been rattled. He's never been destroyed, but he is a younger fighter, right? He's 31 years old. He's in his fighting prime. He's in amazing shape. I think his durability should be there, but Nganu's different. He hits like a fucking Mack truck. The power that this guy possesses is insane. So yes, can Nganu finish him? Absolutely. But I'm going with Bon Gaman. I'm going with Cyril Gon. I hope that the next fight is John Jones versus Cyril Gon. But I'm putting him in my parlay. I'm marking it down. And we get in that bread. So not a super deep card, but some fun fights. Fighting's back. After this, we do have a two-week breakup. Uh, the next fight card will be the first Saturday in February, so two weeks out. 
It'll be another Fight Night Apex card with the main event time of 4 p.m. 4 p.m. Uh, Pacific. And that'll be headlined by Jack Hermanson versus Sean Strickland. That'll be a fun one. But these main events, the trilogy, the big dogs, it's going to be fun. Now headed to the hardwoods. Let's talk a little basketball. A little trade action. The trade's not until trade deadline's not until I think the second week of February. So we have about a month. Uh, but there was a three-team trade sending Juancho Hernan Gomez to the Spurs, Bryn Forbes to the Nuggets, which I like, and Bol Bol and PJ Dozier to the Celtics. Teams trying to change it up a little bit, and I'm sure that won't be the last one anytime soon. Let's talk about the games since the last podcast. We put the podcast out on Friday. I recorded Thursday morning. So Thursday we had a TNT doubleheader. The Milwaukee Bucks beating the Warriors 118 to 99. The Bucks then moved to 27 and 17. The Warriors 30 and 11. And this was all the Greek freak. The Greek freak doing his thing in Milwaukee. He had uh, 30 points, 11 rebounds, and 12 assists. A nice triple double. Uh, he did shoot two threes. He was 0 for two. 8 from 12 from the free throw line. Chris Middleton chipped in with 23 and 7. And Bobby Portis, 20 and 7 as well. Uh, for the Warriors, they did have Steph Curry. He only scored 12 points on 11 shots. He had 8 rebounds as well. But the team was led by Andrew Wiggins with 16 points in the defeat. The Bucks get the victory. Other than that, on Thursday, the Thunder beat the Nets in Brooklyn, which means no Kyrie. Obviously, Kevin Durant's out. James Harden put up 26-9-7, uh, but Shigus Alexander had a day, 33-10-9, a nice little upset on the road for the Thunder. Heading in this past weekend, on Friday, the 76ers beating the Celtics 111-99. Uh, they went to 24-17, the Celtics right around 500 at 21-22. And, and Joel Embiid having big games. Really coming into his own since coming back from injury. Uh, he finished with 25-13-6. Tobias Harris, 17 points on 15 shots. One for six from three. Uh, there's been rumors that they might be trying to trade Tobias Harris. Uh, uh, package him up with Ben Simmons. And the Celtics were led by Jason Tatum. He had 20-11 and 11 on 17 shots. Not very efficient in defeat for Mr. Tatum. The Warriors bouncing back on the road. They were able to smoke the Bulls 138 to 96. And really the story here was um, Andrew Wiggins with 21 points and Jordan Poole with 22 points. Uh, they were able to do this with Steph Curry only putting up 19 points on 15 shots. So he's been struggling with efficiency the past few weeks. But as a team, they had one, two, three, four, five, six players in double digits. Jonathan Kuminga with 25 off the bench. The Bulls were led by uh, Nikola Vucevic with 19 and 14. Um, this is where Zach Levine got hurt early. Kobe White had 20 points off the bench. Let's see. Click the wrong button here. Also on Friday, the Heat beat the Hawks 124 118. The Heat at 27 and 15. The Hawks at 17 and 24. Very disappointing season for them. The Hawks were led by Trey Young, 24 points and nine assists. Uh, actually, an efficient game for him. I always knock his efficiency. 
Uh, for Miami, Jared Butler, 23 and 10. And then Tyler here with 24 points on the bench as they clean up the Hawks at home in Miami. D Wade County, baby. Uh, the Mavericks able to beat the Grizzlies to slow them down on the road. They go to 23 and 19. The Grizzlies, a very impressive 30 and 15. The Mavericks were led by, of course, Luka Doncic, 27, 13, and 10. And for the Grizzlies, uh, John Morant had 19 points on 15 shots, so not his best day. He had eight turnovers as well. Trying to do a little too much here. Heading into Saturday, the Raptors beat the Bucks on the road. Little upset action here. Uh, the Raptors were led by Pascal Siakam, who had 30 and 10, three for three from three. Uh, OG had 24 and eight as well. Uh, Giannis did have 30 points and six rebounds, um, but the rest of the team didn't give him a ton of help. Let's see. The 76ers beat the Heat on the road. Again, Joel Embiid on a terror, 32-12, and 12, um, 0 for 3 from 3. Uh, but Tobias chipped in with 22. Uh, Seth Curry with 21. He was 5 of 9 from 3. For Miami, they did have Jimmy Butler and Kyle Lowry but and Tyler Hero. And still suffered a, a pretty big loss at home. They were led by, what's this guy's first name? Omer Yurtseven, who's had a nice fill-in with some injuries. He had 22-11 and 11 as uh, Bam's been out for a while uh, in, in the defeat. The Celtics beat the Bulls at home. The Celtics trying to get back into their winning ways. They were led by Jason Tatum with 23 points and 12 rebounds. It took him 24 shots to get there. And then the Bulls were led by Vucevic again, who had 27 and 6. Uh, my nice little fantasy pickup here. Ayo Dunsumo uh, pitched in with 21 and 10 for the Bulls. The Nuggets waxed the Lakers in, in Denver. Um, LeBron James had 25 and 9 in defeat. Um, Jeff Green had 26 points for the Nuggets to lead the way. And Bones Highland with 27 and 10 on the bench. Out of nowhere, uh, the rookie out of VCU popping off off the bench. You know, LeBron had to love that one. And then Sunday, the Nuggets losing to the Jazz on the road or at home. The Jazz get the on the road victory. They were led by Donovan Mitchell, who had 31 points. Uh, Denver was led by Nikola Jokic, who had 25, 15, and 14. Not a lot, lack of effort by the former MVP. And the Timberwolves shocked the Warriors. I'm assuming Steph didn't play here. Yeah, Steph didn't play. Uh, the Warriors were led by Jordan Poole with 20 points. Uh, Kuminga continuing to roll with 19-7 and seven off the bench. And the T-Wolves were led by Carl Anthony Towns. Cat with 26-11. and 11. And then they had uh, Jalen Noel with 17. And Malik Beasley with 16 off the bench as well. And into this week, the Lakers beating the Jazz on Monday. That was tough. Um, the Jazz were led by Mike Conley with 20 points. Uh, Donovan Mitchell suffering a concussion here and didn't play in tonight's game. And LeBron with 25-7-7. LeBron said the Lakers are going to get back into winning ways. They held true against a very good Western Conference opponent at home. The Hornets beating the Knicks on the road, 97 to 87. They're at 24 and 20 at this point. The Knicks even 522 and 22. The Hornets were led by Miles fucking Bridges, 
38 points, 12 rebounds. He was 5 of 9 from 3. And the Knicks were led by Julius Randle with 18 and 10. They did not have a lot of offense in this game. The uh, R.J. Barrett with 18 and 12 on 18 shots as well. The Grizzlies getting revenge on the Bulls at home, 119-106. The Grizzlies were led by John Morant and Desmond Bain, who each had 25 points. The Bulls were led by DeMar DeRozan, who had 24 points on 24 shots. Not a lot of other statistics to support him. Uh, Kobe White with 16. Dunsanmu with 15 and 10 and 6. So a lot of young performances for the Bulls without um, Zach Levine. The Hawks beating the Bucks at home, 121-114. Giannis had 27-6-6, but he was 8-20 from the field. Was he shooting threes again? He was 1-for-3 three from three. The Hawks were led by Trey Young, who had 30-11 on 17 shots. He's really been efficient of late, trying to dig themselves out of this hole. And um, let's see. DeAndre Hunter had 20 points, 9 rebounds as well. See the Heat beating the Raptors at home 104.99. The Heat were led by uh, Jimmy Butler, who had 19 and 10. Uh, Tyler Hero had 23 points off the bench, and Toronto was red, led by Fred Van Fleet, who had 22 points, and Chris Boucher had 23 and 10 off the bench. This Heat team, man, people are underestimating them. They're going to be a team no one wants to fuck with in the playoffs as long as Bam and the squad's healthy. On Tuesday, there wasn't shit for hoops, which led us tonight. The fucking Rockets, I've watched the first half, beat the Jazz 116-111 in Utah. Obviously, no Donovan Mitchell. Bogdanovich led the way with 29 points, but he was 3 of 13 from 3. That's on 27 shots. It's a disaster. Rudy had 23-9 and in the defeat. And the Rockets were led by Garrison Matthews, who was hot from beyond the arc. He had 23 points. He was 5 of 9 from the fi- uh, from 3. And 4 of their 5 starters were in uh, double digits. Let's see what else is happening in the night. We'll cover this one. Uh, the Nets beating the Wizards in D.C. 119-118. Um, obviously, Kyrie Her- Irving able to play. He went with uh, for 30 points and 7 assists. Even LaMarcus Aldridge looking good, 27-6 and six as they step up without KD. James Harden only had 18-9-8. For the Wizards, they were led by Bradley Bill, who had 23 points, um, and the rest of the team really didn't show up, which with the Nets' defense, you would think that wouldn't be the case. Big win by the Hornets over the Celtics on the road today, 111-102. Um, Miles Bridges with 22-7 as he stays hot. Terry Rozier with 28-10. And for the Celtics, they were led by Dennis Schroeder, who had 24-7-5 in defeat tonight. Let's see. The Bucks beating the Grizz, 126-114. Um, Giannis, MVP, 33-15-7. Chris Middleton, 27-7-7. Big game from their playmakers. John Morant with 33-14-8. Ah, damn. And uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. with 29-9 in the defeat. Uh, very top-heavy by the Stars in that game. We'll show out performances. So as we look at the standings... Oh, shit. I did not even realize this. I was just talking shit about people not counting the Heat in. They're 29-16. and 16. They're second in the East. 
The Bulls still won. Brooklyn, three. Milwaukee, four. Sixers, five. Cavs still in that sixth spot. And there's only two and a half games that separates one through six. So very tight top of the Eastern Conference. Hornets, seven. Wizards, eight. Celtics, nine. Raptors, ten. Hawks, Knicks, outside looking in. In the West, Phoenix, Golden State, Memphis, Utah. Then there's a big break. Dallas, Denver, LA, LA, Minnesota, Portland. The Lakers trying to climb their way out of the play-in. You know, LeBron don't want no part of the play-in again. Um, but let's talk a couple teams. We're going to talk, uh, break down an East and West team each week. Starting in the East, a team that we broke down in a couple games because they've been hooping. The Charlotte Hornets, man. This has been a fun team to watch. A team that I've been rooting for. Um, shout out LaMelo and his new shoes. He's got these Rick and Morty shoes coming out. I'm liking the new sneakers. I haven't worn them. Probably won't. I haven't been hooping any time of late. Uh, I wish I was. Good workout. But, uh, yeah, great shoes. You know, you got to give the guy props. The team's looking good as well. In their last 10 games, they're 7-3. and three. They're in the seventh spot, a game and a half from Cleveland in, uh, to avoid the play-in. I think they're going to be right on the cusp of being a play-in team throughout the year, but a very young team that's looking good. Injury-wise, they're pretty much completely healthy. It says P.J. Washington sustained a right hip bruise tonight, but I'm sure he'll be fine. Looking at their depth chart, um, just lots of fun playmakers. It's an interesting hodgepodge mix as they got LaMelo Ball. He's ha having a great year. Um, fresh off uh, Rookie of the Year. He's averaging 19.4 points a game, 7 rebounds, 7 assists. Um, let's see what he had last year. He averaged 15, almost 16 a game last year, so definitely improving. Uh, his three ball, he's shooting. Let's see. 21, 22. 36.9 from the field. He was 35.2 from uh, the three ball last year. So uh, good improvement from LaMelo Ball. Obviously, they gave Terry Rozier a ton of money. Uh, it's, starting, it's actually paying off, especially from last year. No, last year he averaged 20 points a game, so that's not necessarily true. Uh, but he's averaging 18.4 points a game. And then you have Gordon Hayward, a good defensive, you know, solid defensive player, a guy that he, he starts building confidence. He's going to be a big playmaker for this team. He averages 17.3, 4.7 rebounds, and 3.7 assists per game. And last year, he averaged 19 in Charlotte. So a little lower for him as well, right? A little more for Melo. And then this guy's taking a big leap. Miles Bridges averaging 20 points a game, seven rebounds. Um, you know, he's only 23 years old, his third year in the league. Uh, the most he's averaged was in the 29, two years ago, he averaged 13 points a game. So, so his game's taken a big leap. He is also shooting 32.5% from three, which is lower. Uh, than his normal last year he shot 40 percent 33 the year before uh, but he's getting the free throw line more he's being more aggressive and then mason pumley doing enough to get the job done he's a lot like steven adams uh when we broke down um the the, the grizzlies he, he does his role he does enough the weak point obviously they don't have a dominant center they don't have amazing defense but when they're on they could score they could keep up with anybody uh, they're a fun team to watch. It'll be interesting to see what this team does to try to evolve this roster moving forward. And then in the West, we're going to break down the Mavericks. The Dallas Mavericks are five spot. They're three and a half games back from Utah from four. 
and four games back from Grizz for three. They're nine and one in their last 10. Obviously, they had been dealing with some injuries, Porzingis, Luka, COVID. It looks like everything's coming together on their injury list right now. The only person out is Sterling Brown. But Luka, having a little bit of a down year, is still early. He's averaging 24, 8, and 8, and that's a down year, right? Last year, he averaged 27. The year before, 28 points a game. I expect this to climb as the season goes on, especially as he gets more one-on-one time with the unicorn Kristaps Porzingis. Who, who has been filling in pretty well. He's averaging 20 points and 7.9 uh, rebounds a game, which is right around his career average. He did average 22 one year in, in New York, uh, but that was pre-injury. And then Jalen Brunson's taken the hugest leap. Nova Nation represent, uh, especially when Luka was out. He's averaging 16 points a game, three rebounds, almost four rebounds, and almost six assists a game. And that's a huge increase from his 12.6 points per game last year as he's a true starter, a guy um, that, you know, they thought they would have last year was Josh Richardson, uh, but Jalen Brunson has done really well. Dorian Finney-Smith, you know, playing his role, uh, he, he's averaging 10 and 4. And then you have um, Maxi Kleba, who's averaging 7, five, uh, seven points and five, almost six rebounds a game. But they have some good depth. Reggie Bullock, Dwight Powell, Tim Hardaway Jr. off the bench. Uh, you don't really see much of Frank Nicotina or Trey Burke. Uh, but they do have some playmakers, very top-heavy, uh, very similar weaknesses to um, the Hornets is their defense. But if they could score, they're on. They're going to be a tough out. And uh, it's going to be interesting as Luka progresses. You know, they don't have that star-studded team. They didn't get that big free agent offseason acquisition, what he could bring to the table and what he could provide for the team. And then we're going to talk some college hoops. We'll really start diving into college hoops more here in the next couple weeks. Uh, to be honest, this week's rankings is about as accurate as I've seen them, right? They're starting to become the more realistic rankings. Teams are in conference play. We saw the big teams against the big teams early. I, only, I have no underrated teams, but I still have four overrated teams. Let me pull this up real quick. I have Arizona overrated. I think they belong in the top 25, but definitely not the top three or even, in my opinion, the top 10. We've done this before. But looking at their resume, you know, they lost to Tennessee, the only ranked team. Uh, their best win would be against Illinois on the road. And I think we looked at this last time. Kofi Coburn did play. Yes, he did play. He's having an underwhelming season. But that's their best win this far. They really haven't played a lot of people. Um, let's see if that changes. They've had a lot of postponed games. We'll see what happens with scheduling. But they'll play UCLA towards the end of the month. A couple times, start of February and, and USC as well. So that'll give us a lot more intel. I also have USC overrated. USC right now is ranked 16th. They're down 11 spots. They took a couple losses. Um, I guess they're not too tremendously overrated, but I think they're going to be at the bottom of the top 25 if they get in. When we look at their resume, their best wins, not really a solid wins all pack 12 play and like long beach state and teams of that nature um, but they're going to be getting a lot more stiffer competition byproduct of them in arizona one of them won't slip too far because all there's left is pack 12 play and the pack 12s you know I, I like to say they're trash but last year in the bracket they shut me up so we'll see um i have houston is overrated as well houston right now is ranked 10th uh they're up one spot they're 10 and 2 
when we look at their resume, they're, they lost to Wisconsin, lost to Alabama. Their best wins, probably Oklahoma State. They have a ton of wins, obviously. Um, I just don't think they're a team that's super scary come tournament time. And they're, uh, you know, a fringe top 25 team, in my opinion. And then lastly, we have LSU. They're down one. They're ranked 15 and or they're ranked 13th. Their record's 15 and two. We look at LSU's resume. They lost to Auburn, beat Kentucky, beat Tennessee, lost to Arkansas, lost to Alabama. They're at Tennessee. They play A&M, who's had some good wins lately. A&M again. So we'll we'll see, you know, how how they transpire the, the in the next couple of games. But when we look back, uh, we definitely have to give Tari Eason a shout out. Federal way Seattle boy who who hooped for them tonight, uh, but just been hooping for them of late. So since we've last had the podcast, Oregon upsetting UCLA in overtime. UCLA hasn't had their legs under them. They've had a lot of time off. Um, a lot of the you know a very well rounded game for Oregon here. Jacob Young led the way with twenty three points. Uh, he was eleven of eighteen from the field. Uh, Johnny Juzang had twenty three and nine. In defeat, so definitely not a lack of effort from him. And Hawkins Jr. only had four and five in the defeat. Wisconsin beat Ohio State at home. Wisconsin's looking good. EJ Liddell had 18 points for the Buckeyes in defeat. Um, let's see. Senior Brad Davidson had 25 points for the Badgers to lead the way. And Tyler Wall had, let's see. 20 points as well for the Badgers. That's weird. And Johnny Davis only had 14. So they had other players step up in a big time game. Wisconsin's looking solid as we progress the season. DePaul shocks Seton Hall 96 to 92. It's definitely a shocker. Um, let's see. Seton Hall was led by Jared Roden, who had 25 points, 7 rebounds. And then Bryce Aiken had 22 points as well as uh, the Seton Hall Pirates take take defeat. And really, it was a two-man show for DePaul as Jalen Terry had 28 points and David Jones a 24 and 8. And he also had five steals in the game. Moving on to Friday, nothing noteworthy of Friday. Illinois smoke in Michigan. Tough season for Michigan, a pre-ranked Michigan team. Let's see if Coburn did anything this game. Coburn with 21 and 10, starting to get some momentum. They're going to need him to be dominant. I figured he'd be one of the most dominant players this year. Oklahoma State beating, uh, upsetting up uh, number one ranked Baylor on the road. Huge win for them. They've been scrappy. Uh, they shot 31% from three. Nothing really outstanding on the, on, on the uh, stat sheet. They were led by uh, Bryce Thompson, who had 19 points in the victory. And for Baylor, they shot 28% from three, eight of 28. Uh, just not hitting their shots. They were led by Matthew Mayer, who had 16 points in the defeat. And LJ Cryer had 18 points uh, off the bench. They lost by seven, 61 to 54. See Oregon beating USC, right? Oregon might be higher ranked than these teams here later. They've had suffered some big losses early, uh, but they were led by Will Richardson, who had 28 points for the Ducks, and USC had uh, Mobley with 18 and nine, and then 
Boogie Ellis had 18 in the defeat for USC as Oregon is on a roll. LSU getting upset by Arkansas. So another upset. There's a bunch of upsets this day. 65 to 58. Arkansas had a few players in double digits, uh, but just played scrappy basketball, played their, their brand of basketball. And LSU was led by Eric Gaines, who had 14 points. And Tari Eason with 13 points on the bench. Again, we'll get to his breakout game that happened, I think, today or yesterday. Uh, but he been hooping, hooping. Northwestern upsetting Michigan State. Michigan State was ranked 10th. They lose 64-62. to um, Not a lot on the box score that really sticks out for Northwestern. Michigan just didn't shoot the ball very well. They were led by Julius Marble II, who had 18 points off the bench. Iowa State beating Texas. It wasn't an upset. This is ranked. Iowa State's ranked 15th, Texas 21. But they escaped 79 to 70. Um, Gabe Kulsher had 22 points for Iowa State. Tyrese Hunter with 13 and 8. Uh, for Texas, they were led by Andrew Jones, who had 18 points, 7 rebounds. He was 4 for 7 from 3. If Andrew Jones is hitting the 3 ball, uh, that should be a good thing. But Ramey only had 10 points on 9 shots. They just didn't get a lot of offense outside of him. Kentucky, 18th ranked Kentucky, beating 22nd ranked Tennessee. They're putting over 100 on them. 107 to 79. Sheesh. Uh, they were led by two players in 20 points. Ty Ty Washington Jr. with 28 and 5. Uh, Kentucky also had Severe Wheeler with 21 and 8. Tennessee was led by um, Santiago Fiscovi, who's having a solid season. He had 20 points. Um, they did shoot 47.8% from three, but the Wildcats shot 61% from beyond the arc. Have a game, Wildcats. Speaking of game, Texas Tech dropping to Kansas State on the road. Texas Tech uh, the past week being uh, the upset team, and now they are the team getting upset. But they were led by Bryson Williams, who had 20 points in the defeat uh, for Kansas State. They shot the ball well from three, 35%. Um, and they were led by Nigel Pack, who had 14 points for the uh, Wildcats. More upsets. Seton Hall drops another one to Marquette on the road. And Mississippi State beats Alabama on the road. Um, Marquette not ranked. Seton Hall ranked 20th at the time. Seton Hall was led by uh, Bryce Aiken again, who had 28 points. Uh, he was 5 of 8 from 3, had a good game. But uh, Marquette shot 50% from 3. That really was the difference maker. Uh, Daryl Morcel with 26 points and 5 rebounds in the victory. And then for uh, Alabama losing by 2, they were ranked 24th at the time. Uh, they had a very rough game, didn't shoot the ball well. They were led by Shackleford, who had 17 and 5. And for Mississippi State, they, they only shot 12% from 3. So not very good, but they were led by Iverson Maliner, who had 24 points and six rebounds to upset the tide. On Sunday, nothing noteworthy. Monday, Purdue beating Illinois in double overtime. This is a fun one. Um, glad to see Purdue win. They look like the better team. They were led by Zach Eady, who had 20 points, eight rebounds. Illinois was led by 
Uh, Alfonso Plummer, who had 24 and 4. Kofi Coburn, only with 10 points in 22 minutes. It's not sufficient enough. Uh, the big men of Purdue getting to him. Uh, Stefanovic also had 22 and 8. He was 5 of 8 from beyond the arc. And Ivy with 19 and 8 in the victory for the Boilermakers. Fun double OT. Yesterday, Duke getting upset by Florida State, 79 to 78. This one was a crazy one in overtime. Paolo Banchero, another Seattle legend, 20 points, 12 rebounds, 7 assists. Uh, for Florida State, they were led by uh, Caleb Mills, who had 18 points. And much like Florida State teams of old, this is a scrappy team, not an amazing team, but a team you don't want to mess with come March. Texas Tech getting back at the win column as they beat 15th-ranked Ohio or Iowa State. They're ranked 18. Um, Iowa State, ice cold shooting the ball, 19% from three. Isaiah Brockington had 12 and 9 in defeat. And for Texas Tech, they were led by Bryson Williams again, who had 16 points for the Red Raiders. Let's see. Texas dropping to Kansas State. Kansas State getting a couple upsets in the Big 12, 66-65. Brutal loss for the Longhorns. Uh, Mark Smith led the way for the Wildcats, who had 22 points, 8 rebounds. For the Longhorns, Marcus Carr popped off with 25 points, but it wasn't enough. Ramey only with 5 points. Andrew Jones with only 5 points. Very streaky offense by Texas. I know that too well. I had Texas winning the bracket last year. It really bit me in the ass. And then today, Marquette beating Villanova. Both my hoops teams losing today. Rough day in the office uh, by 3, 57 to 54. Wild, wild finish here as, uh, what's his name? Let's see. Is it Chase Lewis? Double check. Justin Lewis. He popped off for 21 points. He was 5 of 8 from 3. But he gets the ball top of the key. Goes to make a cut, knocks the defender over, almost falls over him, gets up, pops a three with maybe one or 2.3 seconds left to get the victory for the Golden Eagles. First time Villanova has lost in the pavilion since 2018 when I believe Furman did the job. Um, but Eric Dixon had 15 points in defeat for Villanova. They shot 25% from three. Uh, Marquette stays hot from three at 44.8%. Shaka Smart and squad. Auburn handles Georgia today. Kentucky handles uh, Texas A&M. And then Alabama beating 13th-ranked LSU. Tried to tell you all they're overrated. Um, LSU was led by Brandon Murray, who had 19 points. But this is the game I was talking about. Tari Eason, boy, 26 points, 10 rebounds. He was 2 for 2 from 3, 9 of 13 from the field. And Alabama was led by... Um, Jaden Shackleford, who had 26 points. Javon Quinterly with 17 off the bench. Some big upsets. Just kind of quickly previewing the week to see if we got some good ones. And in the weekend, Wisconsin hosting Michigan State on Friday. That'll be fun. Auburn, Kentucky on Saturday morning. That's a huge game. Probably game of the until the next pod. Tennessee hosts LSU. Both overrated in my opinion, but someone's got to get beat. Kansas versus Texas Tech on Monday. Illinois versus Michigan State on Tuesday. So we got some games. It's a huge game on Saturday. 
And then on Tuesday, UCLA hosting Arizona. See who's the most overrated team. But wrapping up the show, episode fucking 64. Can you believe it or not? We got some Supercross venue two in Oakland, California. And this was quite a bit of a different race than A1 for the 450s, that's for sure. Um, Adam Sorrentarulo ended up with the whole shot. Malcolm Stewart, Dylan Frandis, and uh, Cooper Webb were battling back from middle to pack, you know, 10 to 15th. Uh, but they had a good finish on the day. But really, this was about Jason Anderson after a very tough A1, looking good in the t- on the Kawasaki ride. He ended up getting first. Aaron Plessinger with a nice second-place finish uh, to, you know, overcome a tough A1. Justin Barsha with third, being the most consistent rider. Uh, Eli Tomac fourth. Malcolm Stewart fifth. Frandis sixth. Cooper Webb seventh. Marvin Muscan eighth. Uh, Sexton ninth. Adam Sorrentarulo 12th, and Ken Roxon 13th. Very tough race for Ken, having some wrecks in the heat, almost getting his face chopped off by a tire. So brutal day for him. And really, this is going to be a crazy season. I think we're going to have lots of ebbs and flows, but it's a, a lot about consistency here. And because of that, when we look at the points, Justin Barsha's in first with 42 points, Jason Anderson in second with 39, Cooper Webb with 39 as well, and Aaron Plessinger for fourth. Um, at, at 37, well, Anderson, Jason Anderson, Cooper Webb, both have 39 Plessinger 37th, Ken Roxon fifth at 36 and Eli Tomac right there with 37. Uh, they're all right in the mix. I think he had 35 actually. And for the t- uh, 250 class, Joe Shimoda hit it in the whole shot. My preseason favorite. I had picked Ken. Ro- I thought it would come down to Ken and Cooper Webb again in the 450 Joe Shimoda and Hunter Lawrence and, um, Christian Craig for the 250. Well, Shimoda hits the whole shot. Hunter Lawrence started in sixth place, but he was able to battle his way up. But Christian Craig takes the victory again. He gets first. Hunter Lawrence second. Uh, Hammaker with third. Moistman fourth. Shimoda finished seventh. And March Banks eighth. So looking at the points two weeks in, Christian Craig in first with four, uh, 52. Uh, Hunter Lawrence at second with 44. Hammaker in third with 44 as well. Moistman right there in fourth with 36, and Shimoda in seventh with 32. Other than that, this weekend we have the Aspen X Games, uh, January 21st through 23rd. The Winter Olympics coming in February 3rd. We have the Supernatural competition, Travis's Rice, all-around snowboarding competition coming up as well. And I ended up finally being able to watch this documentary about the Gorge Amphitheater. You can get it on Amazon Prime called Enormous. It gave me chills hearing about how the venue got set up. One of my favorite venues, probably besides Red Rocks that I've ever been to for a concert. Awesome fucking deal. I had just watched Tame Impala here this fall. Really cool documentary. Check it out. Enormous. The Gorge Amphitheater documentary. Amazon Prime. You could find it. But other than that, don't forget, Fueled Supplements. I know. Talk about it all the time. They're the one and only sponsor here at Smartsheet. You're about to hear Josh Moran's story. Um... It's a new year, new you, new fresh new you. You're getting some supplements. Check out the small uh, businesses. Fieldsupplements.com has everything that you can need. Better than going to GNC and, and, and helping all these big corporations. All the big companies, they don't need more money. Let's help the small business. Fieldsupplements.com. See you guys next week.